And so as we continue this series, The Elephant in the Family Room, um, we're going to look at this idea that as flawed human beings, so often we can get our priorities a little out of whack, a little um, off, off base, off skewed, and we can all do this. So this is not just a pointing fingers or anything like that, but each one of us in this room, whether you consciously do it or not, um, you reveal what is most important to you in life by the way that you act, by the things that you worry about, the way that you talk, all of the above. And we all have these things that we deeply, deeply care about, which are not bad things, and that's part of the talk this morning. However, it's when we start to make these things more important than God himself that they can become a little bit off-centered. And so before we dive into all the things this morning, we're going to look at our passage to ponder that we've been carrying throughout this series. It's from 1 Peter chapter 4, um, verses 7 to 9, and it reminds us of this, really positive right off the top. The end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. And so therefore, or in light of this, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And so as we read that, if we are really going to be these people who not only love Jesus and follow him, but also have this understanding that one day he is returning, that our priority not only needs to be loving others, but loving God at his utmost where he needs to be. That the Bible says that loving God, as we read earlier, and loving others are the two greatest commandments that through all things, they funnel through these two central commandments that we follow. However, this love that we're talking about, this loving each other deeply, can easily be misplaced at times. And we love to put our identity, our affirmation, our satisfaction in things other than God, and it's very easy actually to do that sometimes. That we can prioritize money, sex, power, romantic relationships, friendships, children, all of the above, even a dream that you have above God himself. And in a recent study, it was done a few years ago by um, an American organization, a Christian organization as well named Barna, they found that people define their identity in this order, specifically. The first one was family. That when you ask someone about who they are, the first thing they say is, I am a mom, I am a dad, I am a grandma, fill in the blank for you. The second one, and this was an American study, was being American, or an allegiance to where you live. So family defined them first, being an American second, then their faith, and then their ethnicity. So their, their family, allegiance, faith, and ethnicity in that specific order. Now, again, that's an American study, so it'd be slightly different for us in Canada. And if we were to do it now, I would add politics into that list of things um, in recent years. But people say that their family relationships define them more than where they live, and in most cases, actually more than their faith. Now, that's a very interesting outcome. And I'm not saying that's all of you this morning, but in that study particularly, people are more willing to introduce themselves as mom, sister, grandma, aunt, brother, cousin than Christian or follower of Jesus. And so it's a very interesting um, thing for us to work through this morning that family was the most central part of who they were. And Tim Keller writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which is a, an amazing book, he defines idols as this. An idol is anything more important to you than God. 
anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give you what only God can, and anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And then he adds that anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. And so it's actually the greatest things that God has given us that we can actually switch around and make into idols. And so the understanding is, sometimes when we come to the Bible and we read about idols, we read about how the Israelites built altars, they built these golden calves, they worshipped. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I read that and I think, what are you doing You have this God that you serve that is beyond comprehension and measure and all of the things that are beautiful and wonderful, and yet you're building this altar or this golden calf, and you're making that your God. But how could they do that? And then we look at our own lives so often and think that just because I don't have this physical thing that I bow down to, that I don't have any idols in my life. That because I don't have a physical golden calf altar in my home, that nothing else is an idol in my life. And yet, as we just read from Tim Keller's, it's still on the screen, that anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God does, idol. It can be easily referenced as an idol. And so it's important as we work through this topic, there might even be things already that you're working through in your mind to say, is work an idol for me? Is Netflix an idol for me? Whatever it may be, that as we talked about how family can easily become an idol, it can get kind of confusing. And so my heart on this topic as we, as we work through scripture and, and some examples is to say that family, marriage, children, all of those things are not bad by any means. That is the last thing I want you to leave this morning hearing. That they are actually, as we've talked about this whole series, is there to give us this rough idea of what is our relationship with God really supposed to look like tangibly in life. However, our primary purpose in life is not to build a healthy and strong family. That is not our primary purpose. Although, that is one of the blessings created for us to enjoy. But our primary purpose is to know God and love him above all other things. That is enough just for, for us to end this morning. Is that, that is not your primary purpose. That's not to say it's not important. And that's not to say it's not something that we should be striving for. But if it is taking precedent over knowing God and loving him deeply, then that's where we can be mismanaging our priorities. And so this morning, we're going to look at the words of Jesus, and then we're going to look at two biblical examples, one of them good, and one of them not so good of how they handled this conversation. And so the first one is the words of Jesus on family priorities. And all throughout the Gospels, Jesus made some bold claims about families that as we read, um, we've read before. But as we read from modern day eyes, we're thinking, that's a little startling. He's using some strong language there. I don't really know how to interpret that. That if your friend from work pulled out this one particular verse, you would be like, I don't really know how to maneuver through this unless we talk about it. But Jesus knows as human beings, we love, we love. 
attaching ourselves to things, to um, people, to anything that we can get tangibly to find affirmation and security and love and identity and safety, all these things. We love finding a tangible thing and finding ourselves through them. Again, whether it be your job, whether it be um, how much time you spend watching Netflix or social media is a huge one, to say that that's really where I find my affirmation because I can tangibly see how many likes I got on this photo. It's an easy thing to measure in that sense. And so one day Jesus is walking along the road with a group of people. He's traveling um, with this big crowd. And in Luke 14, it recounts that he turns around and he says this to them. We've read it before in, in other Sunday mornings. It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, we've read this verse a few times, actually, throughout this series so far, and it can be confusing in the sense as we read this word hate, we think, man, that's a strong word. Does Jesus really want me to hate my family? Are they not supposed to be important? Does he not want us to love them and cherish them and make them stronger and make them better? Is that not what he wants for me? And it's important to understand that right before these couple of verses, Jesus had just set up the parable of the banquet where he's talking about how life in the kingdom is like an invitation that you just get to accept. That you are invited into this open invitation and that is exactly how it is like coming to God, that someone invites you and you can just come. Exactly how you are. Exactly with your, with your past, with everything that you bring, that that's what the kingdom of God is like. But Jesus is very careful here to also add that being a follower of Jesus is simply more, it's not just accepting the invitation itself. That's a huge part of it. We have to say yes to it first. But he also adds that our priorities then need to change. That as you say yes to this invitation, that actually you step into, as Pastor Dave mentioned earlier, we're going to learn how to be more like him day in and day out and be better at that. That he boldly states that a disciple of Jesus comes to him without reservation, placing him first and foremost in their lives above all other relationships, even your marriage. And Jesus loves marriage. He loves the importance of family and children and that whole and the unit and what that shows to the world about our faith. And yet he says, but there's a little bit of a, a loophole, if we can say it like that. That it's not a matter of hateful emotions or hating people or disdain or anything like that. But he says, in light of how much you love me, no other relationships can compare to that that in light of your love for me, that everything else might look like hate. And again, we have a hard time with the hate word because it's a little strong. But it's this idea that the, the difference between your allegiance to God and your allegiance to other saints needs to be drastic. That our allegiance to everything and to everyone else is so much less in some ways than our relationship with the Lord. And we can work that out in the sense that the more we love God, the more we love our families. But if we love our families more than we love God, that's where the confusing component comes in. But we start changing our priorities around. 
that it's only in God himself through Jesus that we can find our identity, our security, our peace, compassion, and mercy in unconditional levels. But when we make family an idol, when we make it the all-important in our lives, we start to believe that if we just build our family to this perfect measure, the everything is swell, then my life will be perfect. If my family was perfect, everything else would just fall into place. And so we think, as we grow older, once I get married, my life will be amazing. Some of you laughed. I don't know what that means. I won't tell you to say what that means. Then we get, you know, let's say you get married, and then it's once I have kids, man, I've, like, made it. I've, like, gotten there. I'm like Pastor Gary. <laughs> and then, which Pastor Gary has not gotten to this part, then we think once our kids leave, oh, man, then life is going to be good. And so we set up all of these things that once my family is this, the rest of my life will just work out. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that's just not the case. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. And so if we start thinking that focusing our, on our family is the be-all and end-all, and we direct all that we are into our family and who we are in our family less than who we are in God, we will become disappointed and disillusioned. And I would argue that you actually miss out on who God is calling you to be outside of your family, within your family, and all of the above and in between. And so this is why Jesus explains, and we've read this before again in this series, to say who is our ultimate allegiance to and what is our family supposed to be like? And he, and he says in Mark 3, starting in verse 31, it says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. We've read this before. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in the circle around him, and he said, here are my mother and brothers. He points to everyone. And he says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. That in Jesus' view of family, it's important, family ties do not get you in. You have to accept the invitation for yourself. That when I was in high school, I would ask, they would find out I was a Christian, and, and I would say, oh, like, do you have a faith that you believe in? And they would say, I'm three quarters Christian and one quarter Muslim. And I'd say, okay, that works for you. You gotta work some of that out. But family ties don't get you in. Family doesn't even come first. And that God's family is open to everyone. That when you place God as the priority in your life, it changes the way that you do all other relationships. It should change the way. But if we put flawed relationships, because no one here is perfect, if we put flawed relationships as the priority, then we will never be satisfied. And really briefly, we'll look at two examples. The first one is Solomon and his many wives. If you are taking notes, you can underline many. Circle that. Is Solomon, we've talked about before, is the wisest king that he, um, in Israel, he happened to be King David's son. He was wealthy and respected and well-known and all the things, but he was also very well-versed with women, in case you didn't know that. He had just a, a you know, mediocre, 700 wives. It's a lot. And then 300 concubines as well. So we probably know this isn't going to turn out well. 
And earlier in the Bible, there had been all this talk to say, here, you don't really want to be intermarried with people from this land, and you don't want to have too many wives and all these things. There's all these warnings to say, because if you do, you're going to be distracted. Your heart is not going to be aligned with what I've called you to do. And so let's read a little bit of Solomon's story in 1 Kings chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, King Solomon, however... He knew all of that. He knew all the warnings, all the things that God had said. But he loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidians, and the Hittites. And they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites already, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth, and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. That as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he did not follow the Lord completely, as David, his father, had done. And we're going to skip down to verse 9. So it says, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. That although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. And so the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I have commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear away the whole kingdom from him, because, but he will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. That in this case, I don't think any of you have over a thousand spouses. So we're not going to go into that part of the talk this morning, but Solomon here gets his priorities mixed-matched. That he places his wives, the many of them, in a status in his life that they do not deserve, which is under God, or sorry, above God. That they became his whole life, and in this case, so therefore, so did all of their gods. That his heart was distracted, and so instead of placing God at the forefront of his mind where his laser focus is, he turns away, and not only does it divide his own heart, but it actually divides the kingdom of Israel for hundreds of years after that. That it's a tragic story of this one man who's getting too distracted, too indifferent as to where his priorities really are, that it causes division not only for him, like I said, but for his community. And so as Tim Keller mentions, that God should be our true spouse. I've heard that often um, as I've grown up. But when we desire and delight in other things other than God, we commit spiritual adultery. That when anything, and again, it's a hard conversation because God loves our family. He wants us to have families. He wants us to love and cherish them. As we just dedicated a child, it's beautiful. And yet he says, but if anything takes precedent over me, you're off you're off skew. You're off to you. And so Solomon showed us what not to do. He's not my good example this morning. And so really briefly, as we, as we 
head towards the end of our talk this morning, we're going to look at Hannah and her relationship with her son, Samuel. That Hannah was a woman in the Old Testament who was married, and he also had another wife. And we find out in their stories that this other wife was having many, many children, and Hannah could not. She was barren. And this was a society, as we've talked about, that that was the thing. If you could not have children, it was how were you going to carry on your family line? It was like a shame. In a society that was fully honor and shame-based, that was very shameful. And yet the Bible explicitly tells us over and over again how much her husband loved her despite that. But year after year, we read in Hannah's story that she longed for children, It was a deep wound for her that she wept year after year that there was this, in some ways, depressive state that she was in. As the Bible talks about, there were times where she just didn't eat. She was so sad. And yet one year, while they're in the Lord's house, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 10, it says this. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. You can feel her pain here. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty... If you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be on his head. That she prays in this moment of deep despair and says, God, will you just hear me? I long for a family. I look around and I see other people experiencing it, and that's what I want. Would you just hear me? And as we see in her story that she later conceives and she gives birth to a son named Samuel, which actually is very similar to a Hebrew word that means heard by God. It's a beautiful story. And you think that she's been waiting for this boy her entire life. She's been praying year after year after year, watching her sister wives give birth to kids, watching her friends, that her community, she's watching it happen and there has to be this, this level of injustice. And then finally, she gets this son, she conceives, and, she, and this, you would imagine that she would be like, this is my whole world now. I've waited for this. He's never leaving the house ever. That I am protecting him. That in some ways, you could see how she would easily make him an idol in her life. And again, not that, that's, not that loving your kids is a bad thing by any means. But you could see how it would easily grab her attention. But she goes to the temple and she's dedicating Samuel. And this is what she says. She's talking to someone who's standing next to her. She says, pardon me, my Lord. As surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. And so now I give him to the Lord for his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And she goes on and she has this beautiful, it's a whole chapter almost of her, a thanksgiving prayer, this beautiful moment where she just honors God for hearing her. But she does this important thing. Instead of saying, thanks so much, I'm going to live my life and make sure he is always safe. She says, it's all because of you, Lord. I could not have him. I could not have this blessing. I could not have this family without you. And so because of that, he's all yours. My eyes are directly focused on you as the one who is the provider of all things, and I will do my best to take care of him. But he's not my everything. You still are. 
but I give him to you. That she gives Samuel back to the Lord, recognizing that it's only through God that she has him in the first place. It's a beautiful story. And the Bible goes on to explain that the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and he had favor with the people. That because she honored the Lord and gave up Samuel in the sense that he was all, she, she dedicated him and said, he's all yours, Lord that he grew in stature and in favor, and he went on to be a reputable prophet and judge of Israel, that Hannah knew where her priorities should be. First and foremost, she goes back to God, and it's not, thanks so much, I got what I wanted. It's thank you so much, and I owe it all to you, and I give him to you. I give my family to you. That her identity and security was in him alone and not anything else, and by him we mean God. And so this morning, my question for you is, where is your primary allegiance? What is an idol in your life? It might be family, and it might not be family. But it's a good question for all of us to ask, to say, what is actually taking over my mind and my imagination more than God is? And if, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a mom in a few months, and it's a, it's a beautiful time, and yet... Similar to the, similarly to when I got married, I was obsessed with having the perfect marriage. And I would read all the things and listen to all the podcasts and talk to everybody and hear all the advice. Some good, not some not so good. And I would hear it all. And that honestly became, if I'm going to be honest, a little bit of an idol for me. And it's not bad. It's not bad to want a healthy marriage. It's not bad for me to want to be a good parent. But I have to be careful that my imagination and my heart and my motives are still focusing on the Lord and not trying to create the most perfect thing over here. Does that make sense? That it's to say that none of those things are bad, but I have to remind myself often, what am I really focusing on? Am I focusing on having the perfect check marks or that this kid's gonna love Jesus and know how much I love Jesus? That that's the priorities for us. And so as we close, Tim Keller writes this, that no person, not even the best one, can give you what your soul needs. And this cosmic disappointment and disillusionment is there in all of life. But we especially feel it in the things in which we set our hopes. And when you finally realize that no one can do for you what God can, there are four things that you can do. The first one is blame the things that are disappointing you and try to move on to better ones which continues the cycle of idolatry and spiritual addiction and a few other things. Or you can blame yourself and beat yourself up about it. Like, man, my priorities are not good. I'm the worst. And that leads into self-loathing and shame. You can blame the world, which is how you become hard and cynical and empty. Or you can reorient the focus of your life on God that every single day there is a new opportunity to say, you know what, God, yesterday I made something an idol. I didn't mean to do it, it just kind of happened. But this morning and today and hopefully tomorrow, I'm reorienting my life again to focus on you. And as we, as we close this morning, and there's a few other things to be done, that that's what I want for my life and I want for us as a community of people is to say, let us be the people who consistently just reorient our lives around the one who gave it to us in the first place. And so, Lord, we are so thankful for this morning.
We're thankful for just the beautiful act that it is to partake in communion, to dedicate a child, God, and then to open your word. We just thank you for the fact that we can come humbly and learning what it means to follow you, bringing all of our stuff. And sometimes, Lord, that stuff means that we put things above you, whether it's family or work or social media or God, whatever it is, that we make idols out of things that are not meant to be idols. And so, God, I ask for myself, for my friends in this room, God, for forgiveness for the moments that we've done that. God, for a conviction to recognize in those moments when we are getting off skewed. And a reminder that each morning, God, to just reorient our lives around you. To keep our eyes forward and not to look to the left or to the right, but instead, God, to have you as our primary purpose, our primary focus, and our primary place where we can find our security and our identity and our affirmation because you so easily and abundantly give that out. And so we thank you, God, for your faithfulness as we've sung this morning. You're so good to us. We love you, and we just pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.